Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, more proof China lied about COVID. Universities are trying to force vaccinations, even on online students. And the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is not thrilled with Aaron O'Toole. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on Tuesday, October 5th, 2021. Hope you're having an absolutely wonderful week so far. Maybe you are on a beach in Tofino strolling along. Well, I mean, if you're the prime minister, that's basically what you're doing. doesn't matter what. I felt so bad because last week I had recorded this show. As I, I shared, I was in Alberta speaking at the Canada Strong and Free Network conference, which was a lot of fun. I had a great time listening to Dennis Prager, Danielle Smith, Chris Sims, Michael Minion, all these great folks, many of whom have been on this show. And because I was going out west, I pre-recorded my show, which every time you do, you are just tempting fate because, of course, I record the show, I head to the airport, and by the time I land, I realize that Justin Trudeau has also landed in Tofino as I just recorded a whole show about the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, and I realize, oh boy. That's okay. I had to get my shots in, so I did at the beginning of this show. Let's turn our attention to China, though. A new report, quite a bombshell, finds that China was ramping up its purchase of PCR tests about six months before the first reported case of COVID-19 in Wuhan, in the Hubei province. Now, Wuhan, of course, we know was the stated genesis of COVID-19, of this virus that has wreaked havoc on the world, especially because of the response from governments it's elicited. But China, who has continually denied it did anything wrong about this, is now looking pretty darn sketchy. So this report is from an Australian cybersecurity firm called Internet 2.0, and they've analyzed procurement data specifically, and they found that China in the Hubei province specifically, so that's where Wuhan is, in the summer of 2019, was spending 10.5 million US dollars on PCR tests, double what they spent a year prior, starting in May. Now, this is a, a full six plus months before China first reported its case of COVID in Wuhan in December of 2019. So these PCR tests, which we know very well by now, were starting to be ordered in such large quantities in Wuhan six months before China admitted there was a problem. Now, why would they be doing that if not because they were seeing evidence of some viral infection that was spreading around around the same time that they were getting all these tests. This is not a radical concept to just look at based on the numbers specifically. They were finding that orders for these tests doubled from universities. They jumped fivefold from China's Center for Disease Control and Prevention and tenfold from animal testing bureaus, while hospital purchases declined. So that's a bit odd right there. And they were looking at these data, which were monthly data they got on procurement and found that there was an absolute spike in orders specifically in May. So this report has concluded that the increased spending suggests May as the earliest start date for possible infection. Again, almost seven months prior to when China admitted to have found a case that aligns with what we now know is COVID-19. 
And these purchases were rising all in Wuhan, which is very important here. From July through October, the Wuhan University of Science and Technology spent 8.92 million Chinese yuan on PCR tests in 2019, which is eight times its total for the previous year. So the report is saying with high confidence that the pandemic began much earlier than China informed the World Health Organization about COVID-19. Now, the obvious response to anyone who's been paying attention is, well, yeah, obviously. But even if it's self-evident, to have these data, to have these numbers supporting it, I think is quite significant. And let's bring this into a Canadian context. Whenever anyone has asked the government, the federal government in Canada, about China's handling of the pandemic, they have not wanted to weigh in. And just to take a little blast through the past here, here is Justin Trudeau saying, well, now's not the time. Why is your government so reluctant to acknowledge China's possible faults in this pandemic? My job right now is to make sure that Canadians get the best support, the best protection, uh, and are able to get through this as best we possibly can. That means uh, getting the equipment that we need. That means uh, ensuring that uh, the cooperation and the collaboration on the international stage uh, is uh, done properly. Uh, that means focusing right now on today and tomorrow and how we're gonna keep Canadians safe. There will be plenty of time uh, to point fingers, to ask questions, to draw conclusions, and to uh, make uh, uh, ensure that uh, there are consequences for uh, things that different countries may have done during this, uh, this, uh, this pandemic. Uh, right now, my job is to look out for Canadians. And my personal favorite, if you ask about China's handling of the pandemic to Health Minister Patty Haidu, well, you're just feeding conspiracy theories. My colleague mentioned was that we uh, don't rely on any one country's source of data. In fact, it's the World Health Organization that coordinates the data from all countries. Uh, Dr. Tam is a special advisor to the committee that's been working on the pandemic since the very early days. Uh, Dr. Bruce Elward led the World Health Organization committee to China to do the investigation of what was happening, what they could uh, determine on the ground in terms of uh, China's capacity to have a full understanding of what was happening. There's no indication that the data that came out of China uh, in terms of their infection rate and their death rate uh, was falsified in any way. In fact, uh, if you look at the death rate uh, overall in China, it's much higher than the one we're seeing now. Um, and so we, we rely on the World Health Organization to do this important work because, of course, we're all in this together. And I think one of the most important things to understand about this pandemic, this global pandemic, is that as long as coronavirus exists in one country, and it exists in all of our countries, that we actually have to work collectively as a world now to defeat this virus, to find better ways to treat and then eventually prevent this virus through vaccination or other kinds of methods. And that's going to take everybody working together. And Sorry, please let her finish. No. Ian. So I would say that your question is feeding into the conspiracy theories that many people have been perpetuating on the, on the internet. And it's important to remember that there is no way to beat a global pandemic if we're actually not willing to work together as a globe. We will have to come up with a global solution to this virus. No country is an island. And I am so proud of the Canadian researchers that are part of the World Health Organization Solidarity Project that are working on developing vaccines and treatments for this virus um, that 
uh, undoubtedly are going to be a big part of the solution about how we all get ourselves out of the situation. I, I've played that clip so many times, and I, every time, the indignation, I, I just have trouble believing. I mean, I don't have trouble believing, but I do, if you get what I mean there. So, Patty, hi, do yeah, you're just feeding conspiracies. Justin Trudeau, yeah, I know. We, we'll talk about China's handling later. Well, maybe we should talk about it right now. Now that we know that China was ordering millions and millions of dollars of these testing kits, which, by the way, other countries had trouble getting in because China was dominating the supply. So we were all sending them all our PPE. Meanwhile, China had a six-month head start on this pandemic. The evidence has grown significantly to support the idea that this leaked from a lab. Now, people will uh, attribute motive to that, which I don't know if we have enough evidence for, as to whether this was just a, a lab accident or something that China deliberately released into the world. Nothing would surprise me now. And again, China has not deserved the benefit of the doubt. China does not deserve the benefit of the doubt. They don't deserve our trust. They don't deserve the ability for us to say, well, I'm sure they tried and they did their best. No, absolutely not. So it wouldn't surprise me if this were a weaponized virus, and it also wouldn't surprise me if this were just massive incompetence on a large scale that the Chinese government was trying to contain and trying to suppress. Remember how China treated its early whistleblowers. Again, this is almost two years ago now. Actually, based on this, it was more than two years ago that this first started. But we know that China was clamping down on anyone who was trying to speak about what was happening. And, and this is one of the reasons that I, I've never been able to adopt the COVID truther position, that this is no big deal, because the bodies piling up in Wuhan were real. The carnage that was being unleashed on communities in Italy, that was very real. So all of this was done because China was trying to save face. China was trying to protect itself and not admit that it had royally screwed up either because of incompetence or perhaps because of malice. Again, you can't give them the benefit of the doubt for anything, and I'm not going to start now. But since this report, there has been silence from the global community. The World Health Organization has said not a darn thing. The Canadian government has said not a darn thing about it. China's foreign ministry has, of course, said that it is a so-called paper. They think it's a serious scientific issue, virus traceability, that can't be distilled down to those just Australian cybersecurity experts. No, they're looking at this through the digital lens because China has not handed over a full and honest and transparent account of its health data. So you can't have a scientific analysis when China is trying to craft a narrative. And I remember there was a story, I talked about it a year and however many months ago, from Barron's, which is a financial analytics firm. And Barron's had found that the Chinese numbers that have been provided were almost too statistically perfect to make sense. They found that it almost looked as though someone had kind of backwards created a trend that just couldn't exist in nature. And, and that story has stuck with me because it is almost as though China has crafted a reverse narrative to try to immunize itself from having any responsibility or any accountability. That's the, that's the real immunization China's caring about right now. And one thing that's worth noting on that as well is that when the WHO team went to investigate, now, now I have many, many misgivings about the WHO, but nevertheless, they were the ones there. They were the ones on the ground. And when they went to China, China refused to hand over its raw data. So this is when I talk about that Barron story. China didn't want its raw data analyzed 
by the World Health Organization. So China went there. They wanted the early cases, the patient data. China would only give a curated summary. So thus not allowing medical investigators, health investigators to do the report, the research they would do in any other situation. What are they trying to hide? And again, the most concerning part of all this is how no one in any position of leadership seems interested in asking all that many questions. Whether it's, you know, Justin, it's not the right time, Trudeau, or Patty feeding conspiracy theories, I do, Politburo Patty, as we've come to endearingly refer to her on this show, the, the fundamental reality is that all of the people who should be calling for answers here are not there. The U.S. State Department was. The U.S. government, prior to uh, Joe Biden taking over, was interested in getting to the bottom of this. They were the ones that were doing the investigation and research into the lab leak thesis, but then all of that seemed to go away once Trump was no longer in the White House. And now the new Biden administration is more interested in cozying up with China because they're going to be saviors on the climate file. They don't want to do anything to rock the boat on any other area, mainly COVID. And why this is so important you may think, well, what's the big deal? Is because, for starters, China will have completely proven it can't be trusted more than, as if we needed more proof, but clearly some people do. So understanding exactly why we got here is very significant. But the other dimension of this is that we are still paying for this. This was not just a pandemic that went through people's immune system. This was a pandemic that eroded people's civil liberties. And that's not China's fault. I mean, that's something that's shouldered by the governments of Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, state governments in the U.S. They own that, not China. China just, you know, handed them the platter. They were the ones that forced it down our throats. Just to point out one example of this, Mount Royal University in Calgary has deregistered 11 students for not declaring their vaccination status. So this is a, a story that it just infuriates me. Mount Royal University, like all universities and colleges in Ontario and many others across the country, has put in a vaccine mandate for students. If you want to go there, you have to be vaccinated. And they had 22 students originally that said they wouldn't declare, which the school just took to mean they're unvaccinated. And then they said, we're dropping you. And then half of them said, okay, fine, I'm vaccinated. And then the other half, 11 of them, are deregistered, which means they're not able to be in class, they're not able to attend campus, they're not able to do anything that would align with them being a student until they get vaccinated and tell the school they are vaccinated. And they're supposed to have access to a rapid testing program. But even that sounds like it's not entirely being enforced. And this last week originally came up because they had deregistered an online student, a student who was doing her classes online. They kicked her out of her student account. And they've apparently rectified that. I know she was working with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and they, I think, put the fear of God into the school, and they re-registered her. But the reality is this school is more interested, I mean, back in my day, which I know I'm not that old, but back in my day, the, the academic offenses were, you know, plagiarism and cheating and doing stuff like that. Now not being vaccinated is like the most grave academic offense. In fact, they're probably going to kick you out of school faster for not being vaccinated than they will for plagiarism. Not that I advise plagiarism in any way whatsoever. So what's happening here is that students 
are now being forced to choose between their values if they, for whatever reason, don't want to be vaccinated and their education. Just turning to Ontario for a moment, Wilfrid Laurier University, where my colleague Lindsay Shepard went, will not allow unvaccinated students to take online courses. This is absolutely insane. If you are in class normally, but you're transitioning to online because of COVID or whatever reason, you are not allowed to do that unless you are vaccinated. So if you want to sit and watch class lectures on your computer at home, where you're not getting your unvaccinated germs on anyone else, you are not allowed to do that. And the school's rationale for this is, well, we hope to transition in the second semester back to in-person learning, So we and we won't allow unvaccinated people in class then, so you can't be doing the online studies now. This is what it's come to. I mean, I, I used to think that it was ridiculous when schools would do land acknowledgements for Zoom events when you have no idea what land anyone's on. Now you need to be vaccinated to sit in your own bedroom and partake in education. This is not about safety. This is absolutely in no way about safety. It is entirely about control. You are not entitled to an education now unless you get vaccinated and want to disclose that vaccination status to your school. And incidentally, schools are still forcing students to wear masks. They're still telling students not to party and not to get together. So on one hand, the schools are telling students in Ontario, certainly, that, uh, yeah, you're vaccinated and this is the only way we can make campus safe. But all these things that you do if you were back to normal with your friends, you aren't allowed to do. You can't walk around without a mask. No, 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 it's not safe enough to have parties with your friends. Well, which is it? Do vaccines work or do they not? And why are you insisting on controlling every single aspect of young adults' lives? under the auspices of public safety and public health, when you're clearly not even prepared to grant any freedom, as much as, you, as, much as it, it pains me to say that freedoms need to be granted. If someone wants to like team up with me, we can all uh, throw in a few bucks and create this new completely online university that only teaches one thing, Civil Liberties 101, and we'll even get free tuition for all of these bureaucrats and lawmakers and university deans because they clearly need it. They clearly need to learn about the importance of individual choice, which is in dwindling supply these days. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the conservative campaign's economic record and why the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and thinks they might need a new leader. The Conservatives, that is, not the CTF. That's up next here on The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Well, as was clear pretty much the day after the election, Aaron O'Toole's future as Conservative leader is not a certainty. We know that caucus is split from what we've heard. Certainly the Conservative base is split. And a lot of people are trying to paint this as being something that is really just about, oh, well, you know, maybe it's the Social Conservatives versus the Red Tories and and whatever. But I want to have an honest accounting of Aaron O'Toole's leadership, even on the fiscal issues, which are supposed to be the bread and butter for conservatives. During the election, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation was a little bit perturbed, I think I can say, with the conservative platform on finances. There was a promise to balance the budget within 10 years, but not really a a specific method on how to get there. And now Franco Terrazano, the federal director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, has a great op-ed in the Financial Post talking about the credibility problem that O'Toole has. Franco Terrazano joins me now. Franco, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on as always. Hey, thanks, Andrew, for having me. 
so let's start here. Where do you think the credibility problem comes from? Well, it comes from the fact that O'Toole flip-flopped on some of the biggest issues when it comes to fiscal issues, when it comes to issues for taxpayers. I mean, he flip-flopped on the carbon tax. He flip-flopped on reigning in out-of-control government spending. He flip-flopped on repealing the Trudeau government's ineffective and expensive gun ban and buyback. Um, you, you know, it, it almost seems like O'Toole was hoping that voters and Canadians wouldn't be paying attention on these issues. But unfortunately for O'Toole, voters aren't stupid. They held a accountable. And now O'Toole has a very, very serious credibility problem. Yeah. And when you talk about these flip-flops, I'm a firm believer in the importance of a clear and concise and consistent message. And I feel that if you have a clarity in your message and you're consistent in your message, even if not everyone agrees with you, they can at least respect you for not or for, for knowing where you are. By the end of the campaign, it was unclear where the Conservatives would end up if they were in government on a lot of key issues. Yeah, it was about as clear as mud, wasn't it? Um, but, but I mean, these were just uh, complete 180s on some of these. Let's start with the carbon tax. You know, for, for a while, O'Toole rightly railed against carbon taxes, right? He, he saw this as an issue that reduces affordability. Um, he even signed the Canadian Taxpayers Federation's pledge when he was running for Conservative Party leader, and, and the pledge was unequivocal. It said that he would scrap Trudeau, the Trudeau government's carbon tax, and then he would replace it with nothing so that he would fight carbon taxes. And then just months before the snap election was called, he did a complete 180 and announced that he would be hammering families with a carbon tax of his own. And Andrew, it gets worse because he also said that he would be bringing in what amounts to a second carbon tax through fuel regulations. So when it's all said and done, O'Toole's carbon taxes would have hammered a family for nearly $20 every time they fueled up their minivan. This was a big one because you're right, and I remember that. I remember uh, with your predecessor, Aaron Woodrick, Aaron O'Toole signing that no carbon tax pledge, very clear, against the carbon tax. And the Conservatives tried to spin their plan as not being a carbon tax because they said that the government wasn't keeping the money. But, I mean, my view on this was that if you're forcing consumers to pay more for something, it's a tax through and through. But, I mean, the worst thing is that it didn't even work. There's a gamble that, okay, if we put this forward, the Conservatives will ingratiate themselves in the hearts and minds of Canadians, and it's not even like they had a win to show for it. Oh, you're, you're absolutely correct on so many issues uh, there, Andrew. I mean, uh, where do we start? <laughs> well, in the first part, of course it's a carbon tax. If the government is going to force consumers to pay more at the pumps, that is a tax. Now, on that issue, I mean, O'Toole was trying to pretend that this wasn't a tax. Well, if you're going to do a 180, if you're going to hammer families with a carbon tax of your own, at least have the spine to admit it, rather than play word games and insult Canadians' intelligence. Um, now, the second issue is that, of course, this was going to raise affordability for Canadians, O'Toole's flip-flop and carbon tax. Now, here's where things really go wrong for O'Toole. One of the key issues that all Canadians, coast to coast, no matter what demographic, uh, were concerned about affordability. Well, O'Toole completely lost the leg to stand on, on affordability, right? Because how can you talk about improving affordability on the one hand, and then on the other hand, hammer families with a carbon tax, which would mean that they would pay uh, nearly $20 extra every time they fill up their minivan? I mean, you can't. And really, that's where O'Toole missed the mark. 
Sarah Goodman, who is in the prime minister's office, one of the chief climate advisors for Justin Trudeau, said on Twitter after the election results that the reelected liberal government is a sign that the government has a mandate to do more on climate and to do it faster. Is there not an argument that by sending Justin Trudeau back to Ottawa, by reelecting a Trudeau government, even in a minority, Canadians are either tacitly or explicitly on board with a carbon tax? No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, even look at how the Trudeau government brought in its massively increasing carbon tax to $170 per ton in the lead up to the 2019 election. Then Environment Minister for the Trudeau uh, Liberals, Catherine McKenna, she she said that the government had no intention to raise the carbon tax beyond $50 per ton. Um, now, after that Liberal government was elected, they waited until, what, two weeks before Christmas of 2020, uh, months before the next election, to announce that they would be raising the carbon tax all the way up to $0.40 cents per litre of gasoline by 2030. So, so even the Liberals, of course, have not been telling the truth when it comes to carbon taxes. And, and I think it's because they know that Canadians really have no appetite to be seeing their cost of living going up. Um, now, one thing I want to go back on O'Toole carbon tax because you kind of brought up a good point but I didn't follow through on it and, and that's this whole idea of the O'Toole savings account right the fact that you're gonna pay a higher price at the pump um, and then somehow this money is gonna be put into a savings account which you can only be using to buy some some green government approved swag now, Andrew, you know that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has been hammering the Trudeau government's carbon tax. We're going to continue to ha hammer that carbon tax. It's really just a thinly veiled redistribution scheme. But at least under the Trudeau government's carbon tax, some people will get some of their money back in actual cash. The old tool carbon tax was a complete disaster. It was so paternalistic. Yeah, I mean, this is the whole thing. Forget about the the lack of you know clarity on what you could spend your money on. This idea that you know you're going to get this rewards account, this O'Toole Bucks account that then you can use for green purchases. So you can buy a bicycle, maybe you can buy some energy efficient windows. But but having this money sitting in an account that you can't access, I mean, that's been like my Petro Points card basically, where the, the it's all sitting there and I, I can't really do anything with it unless I just want to buy gas. That's the one thing that I can do with that but at least i had a choice in enrolling in that program yeah o'toole's carbon tax flip-flop is really a disaster from beginning to end Re really hey hey don't worry everyone out there in calgary yeah you're going to be facing higher fuel bills but hey you'll be able to cart your uh, groceries home in the middle of january with your new e-scooter it was just a complete disaster <laughs> I want to turn to the other aspect here, which was uh, the balanced budget thing. Now, I, I had asked Aaron O'Toole about this. I think it was the very first day of the campaign. You say that you're going to balance the budget in 10 years. We've seen the economic situation Canada's in. How are you going to do that? And, and throughout the campaign, we heard certainly specific promises, but, uh, but I never saw what are you going to do to in 10 years balance the budget. And, and the caveat here is that because of the spending that we've seen in Canada, not just over the last year and a half, but over the last uh, six years of the Liberal government, balancing the budget, belting, uh, belting the tight, tightening the belt is going to be a, a challenge. But, but I never really, by the end of the campaign, saw how that was going to happen. Yeah, I, I mean... It, th this was a tough one, right? This is very tough for Canadian taxpayers. It, it's really the the one trillion dollar elephant in the room is the federal government's debt. Now, maybe we give the Conservatives a little bit of credit because they were the only major party that was at least talking about balancing the budget. But make no mistake about it, the O'Toole so-called budget balance plan 
was not credible. So we, we remember the data that came out of the parliamentary budget officer, right, that under the current trajectory, we wouldn't see a balanced budget federally until 2070. Well, that was before all of the massive spending promises in this election. Now, somehow, O'Toole wanted to spend about $50 billion more than that last Liberal government budget, and he thought that he could balance the budget decades sooner. So he wanted to spend tens of billions of dollars more and thought he could balance the budget decades sooner. Well, Andrew, uh, the math doesn't add up there. And what's so unfortunate about this Conservative Party platform is that for a long time, they've rightly been talking about the dangers of the uh, of the Trudeau government's runaway spending. Uh, we have more than a trillion dollars in debt. Even before the pandemic, the Trudeau government brought per person spending to all time highs. And even under those scenarios, which we are living through, the O'Toole platform still couldn't find any meaningful savings. Yeah, and the reality is you have to either increase revenue or cut spending. And both of those things are very politically dangerous, some might say, but at the same time, they're also necessary. You don't want to be the one running on cutting the budget. You don't want to be the one running on raising taxes. And that's the thing. So if you're trying to say you're balancing the budget, but you're not articulating which of those two you're going to do, you're, you're missing a key part of the arithmetic here. Yeah, there's, there's a few things there. And Andrew, I'm just going to push back slightly yeah, on please. What's, what's politically popular. Well, I think it, it actually is politically popular uh, for, for some governments to actually find some savings and to actually stop with this crazy spending. For example, I think it would be very politically popular if one of these parties, O'Toole, for example, were to have come out and said, hey, we are going to reverse the two pandemic pay raises that all members of parliament received. I think that would have been been very popular. I think it would have shown Canadians that, you know what, maybe these politicians do kind of get what we're going through. Uh, and there's other areas of the budget they could have they could have cut. I think it would have been popular for these politicians to say, we are going to put an end to corporate welfare. We don't need to be giving hundreds of millions of dollars to the Ford Motor Company, for example. I think it would have also have been very popular to say, hey, we are going to force all political parties to pay back the wage subsidy that was never meant for them. So, so Andrew, you know, I, I agree with you to an extent, but I think it would have been very popular for parties to actually come out and be like, look, guys, there, there is definitely some fat up here in Ottawa, and we're going to do our best to trim that fat. No, and, and I very much agree with that. And I, I should qualify by saying the, the landmines that are being set by opposition whenever you talk about cuts makes it uh, politically risky. But you're right. If you are very clear about what it is you want to do, I, I don't think most Canadians would say, yeah, that's I think they'd all they'd all agree with it. Uh, just very briefly here, Franco, let's talk about affordability. You mentioned it before in the context of the carbon tax. We've seen skyrocketing inflation. I didn't see a lot of discussion in general about this, about how to rein in inflation from any of the parties. Yeah, it's it's really quite un unfortunate. And, and and I think the reason is, is because a politician cannot credibly talk about improving affordability without taking a very hard look in the mirror and, and looking at what the federal government is doing to reduce affordability. Mm. Now, we've already talked about taxes. Of, of course, we've talked about the carbon tax. That is an obvious way that the federal government drives up the cost of living. But, but of course, there's a myriad of other different types of taxes. Even during the pandemic, the average Canadian family paid about 36% of its budget to taxes, which is more than what that average Canadian family paid uh, for things like housing, fooding, food and clothing combined. So certainly tax relief, which we didn't see any broad-based tax relief, would improve affordability. But Andrew, th 
the second thing um, which some members of parliament are talking about is the inflation tax, right? When the government prints more dollars, your dollars buy less. Now, some members of parliament are talking about it, but if we really want to have a legitimate conversation about how to improve affordability on Canada, we have to talk about the government's printing press. Yeah, no, very much agree with that. And this is, again, something that if we are talking about, to go back to the conservative leadership, what the party does moving forward, or any party, I'd like to see them take these things seriously. I mean, if you're going to say that the conservative party is going to have this this one-track focus on the economy, on taxes, on affordability, great, do it, and do it well. Franco Terrazano, Federal Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always a pleasure, good sir. Hey, thanks for having me on. That was Franco Terrazano of the CTF, always a great advocate for taxpayers, even if he has to drop what may be some uncomfortable truths about politicians and political parties. I mentioned in that exchange there with Franco, Sarah Goodman, who's a senior advisor on climate and the environment for Justin Trudeau. And, and there's the tweet there. She says very clearly that the government now has a mandate to do more faster on climate. Now, if you're a Canadian taxpayer, that means hold on to your wallet because something is going to be, or a couple hands are going to be in there trying to pluck it out. I, I do want to mention it because I brought that up to Jason Kenney uh, last week at a press conference and asked him, what is this going to mean for Alberta if the federal government thinks it has a mandate to just aggressively ramp up its climate efforts? This is what he said in response to that. Well, that's a peculiar kind of mandate where you actually lose votes um, and have the smallest percentage of popular vote for a government since 1867 in the history of the federation uh, i would i think um i think that perhaps should result in a perhaps a bit of humility rather than hubris uh to say that it is a huge endorsement of the government's direction uh, i think what most canadians are concerned about uh once we get past past the COVID crisis is economic recovery and uh, stability and uh, a federal government attacking the largest sector of Canada's economy uh, does not help us advance national prosperity, job creation or economic stability. Um, and market realities are now coming to bear with a growing scarcity of availability of uh, energy. You see gas prices in Europe and in many parts of the world skyrocketing because there has been a lack of, invest, of upstream investment and there's been so much obstruction of uh, pipelines and, and other export opportunities. So um, if Canadians are going into a long, cold winter paying uh, uh, sky-high gas prices in a country that has one of the largest gas reserves on earth, I think they're going to be asking Ms. Goodman and Mr. Trudeau why uh, the federal government has been impairing that industry. So I, I, I think um, it, it's our hope that, that the federal government will take a step back and realize that people need financial security, but also energy security, and Alberta will be a key partner in that. As you can see there, Premier Kenny kind of sees the writing on the wall and knows that Alberta is about to get hosed, although he used more diplomatic language than that. We've got to end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the show. We'll be back in just a couple days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.